All right, thank you. Abre as suas Bíblias, por favor, até Marcos capítulo 13. See there? I can speak in tongues. I have translators all over this place. Mark chapter 13 is where we are. I've got to practice a little bit. My documents are in order. Thank the Lord. I have got all of my documents back and... We are hopefully going to be traveling back to Brazil after the first of the year, so I need a little bit of practice. So y'all won't mind if I preach about half this in Portuguese, will you? Just as long as I do it quiet enough that I don't disturb your nap, I can do whatever I want, right? All right, Mark chapter 13 is where we are. Uh, we have been preaching through Mark's gospel now for some time, find ourselves in the very complex and complicated chapter of 13, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number 24. And I'll read through the end of this chapter. So beginning in verse 24 of Mark chapter 13, God's Word says this, Jesus speaking, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send forth the angels and will gather together His elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that He is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning in case he should suddenly come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Well, Mark chapter 13, and particularly the last half of Mark chapter 13, present to me and to us the most challenging exegetical task thus far in the book of Mark. There are probably few subjects that have spawned more debate and about which there is more disagreement among believers than this subject of the second coming. And it is extremely difficult to follow and one must be on his P's and Q's in order to track it out. Notice I said it is difficult but it's not impossible. So this morning, this is what I want to do. I want to ask your permission to teach this sermon, really, rather than preach this message, because I want us to make some very strong and very clear conclusions between what we are going to say and what the text actually reports. I'm going to ask you 
to stay with me and you're going to have to get on your theological horse and you're going to have to put on your theological cowboy hat if we're going to make sense of this. So cowboy up, pull on your hat and let's giddy up through this passage. Now there are several things here that we've got to really lay out as ground rules before we do because again, you know, we looked last week as we started this about how this text is complicated by the fact that it follows the biblical pattern of prophecy. Being that there is an imminent fulfillment of some of these things, but yet there is a more distant fulfillment of the rest of these things. And that's the way biblical prophecy is. It's a dual focus. There's usually one focus in the immediate foreground. There's another focus in the distant background. And if we get confused on which one is which, then we mess the entire thing up. There are some folk who say that all of the events of Mark chapter 13 have already happened. There are others who say none of the events of Mark chapter 13 have happened. I think the Bible teaches in this passage that it is a combination. And it's up to the expositor, it's up to the interpreter to trace out the words of Jesus and follow things like these near demonstrative pronouns as opposed to remote demonstrative pronouns that we see all through this passage. He says these things and then he says those days. You get the idea, these being near, those being far away. So there are all types of exegetical pointers in here telling us that we have a blending of things that really took place, already took place historically in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman general Titus and yet those that have not happened and will not be fulfilled until the sky is rolled up like a scroll and the King of kings and the Lord of lords makes his entrance. So here we go. How are we going to make sense of this? Well, as we come to this passage, there are several things that we've got to keep in mind if we're going to come to some right conclusions. Number one, we have to understand that this is apocalyptic literature. It is apocalyptic language and therefore we must treat it as such. And apocalyptic language is naturally understood in a different way than simply historical narrative or gospel or any other genre that we find in the New Testament. I told you I'm going to take you to school today. So here we go, New Testament 101. And just rest assured there's going to be a midterm exam. So you better take good notes. Number one, if we're going to make sense of this and come to good conclusions, we must realize that this is apocalyptic language and literature. Number two, if we're going to make sense of this, then we must use what's known in exegesis as the analogy of faith. And put plain and simple, what that means is we must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So we allow a more clear teaching on the second coming help clarify a more obscure teaching on the second coming and we put it all together with what's known as the analogy of faith. So we're going to do that this morning. So I'm going to break pattern and I'm going to have you looking at some other passages in order to clarify what Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 13. Not only is it apocalyptic literature and we must use the analogy of faith but if we're going to draw some good scriptural conclusions concerning the second coming 
then our conclusions must be congruent with authorial intent. We cannot make this passage mean something that the author did not mean for us to understand. We cannot make it mean something today that it did not mean to its original hearers nearly 2,000 years ago. That's known as authorial intent. Hear me. Here's the wrong question in Bible study. Well, what does that mean to you? Can I say to you, it doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it meant and what the author intended it to mean for us. And see, you can go down a heretical road a pretty long way if you're going down the road of what does this mean to me. No, it's what did it mean when it was written and from that we draw conclusions and we draw our application. So here we go. I want to speak to you today on the time that we have remaining on the subject of scriptural conclusions concerning the second coming. What does this passage teach us about the second coming and what conclusions can we draw as we use these three interpretive keys that I just set forth and I hope you took notes because you will see them again on your midterm exam. Alright, here we go. Number one, the events of the second coming will be unmistakable. They'll be unmistakable. There's no way that you confuse them with any natural phenomenon. They're not something that just happened. They are going to be unmistakably events that are generated out of a divine nature. Now, there are a lot of folk that will say, as they did in Paul's day, remember Paul had the right to the Thessalonians because somebody was teaching that these events had already transpired. And Paul writes to them and says, Hey, I, I want you to understand, no matter who writes to you, these things haven't happened yet. When they do happen, you will be the first to know it. So here we go. Notice how unmistakable these events are. And again, notice how this scripture, how this passage is broken up. Check it out with me. He gives us the heart of the teaching in verses 24 through 27. There's one paragraph, block it off. Then... In order to help us understand that, he gives us two illustrations. One illustration is found in verse 28 through 32. That's the parable of the fig tree. Then he illustrates it farther in verses 34 through 37 as he talks about the man who was going on a journey. So that's the way it lays out exegetically. Now look at these unmistakable events that he highlights in the first section. That is verses 24 through 27. The first unmistakable event is this. The second coming is preceded by unprecedented calamity. Look what Jesus said. I want you to see this. Now, remember, I, I'm not about setting a timeline or anything like that, but when the Bible speaks, let's let the Bible speak, okay? So check it out. Look what Jesus says in verse 24 of Mark chapter 13. But in those days... Now look, here we go. He opens up with that distant... A remote demonstrative pronoun in those days. So he's way out in the future somewhere when he says to his disciples, in those days. Now look, here's a comma, and he says, after that tribulation. Now what tribulation is he talking about? Look with me in verse 19 from the teachings that he just gave. 
For those days will be a time of tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened those days. He is talking about a time of tribulation that the world hasn't seen and probably can't even imagine. It's going to get tough in these days. Do you get that sense? And notice when it is that the second coming takes place. What did Jesus say here? He said, in those days, look, after that tribulation. So the second coming will occur on the heels of unprecedented earthly calamity, most of it caused by man. Notice the second unmistakable event of the second coming. Not only is it preceded by unprecedented calamity, but it initiates cataclysmic cosmic upheaval or reaction. Now when I say cosmic, we just expanded the realm. Not only are we talking about this planet, but we're talking about our neighboring planets and the solar system. We're talking about other solar systems and other galaxies. We're talking universes here. And notice what Jesus says is going to take place. He says, uh, uh, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in heaven will be shaken. Now have you ever seen anything like that occur? Have you read where anything like that's occurred in the history of planet earth? No. You see, these are things that are still yet to come. Now let me reserve comment about that until we get a little bit farther into this passage. Just know that the second coming, I say that these things are initiated by the second coming and I'm going to show you that here in just a little while. Number three, what's unmistakable about the second coming in the plain teaching of this passage? Number three, His identity will be clear to all. Who He is is going to be clear to everybody. Now, Dr. John read Revelation chapter 6. I want you to find your place there with me and let's look at this because Revelation chapter 6 is the corollary passage and here's where we begin our analogy of faith as an interpretive key. Notice what it is that, that, that John says in verse number 13. Well, in verse number 12, he says, The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now His presence is going to be clearly, I mean His identity is going to be clearly known to all. Can I say it to you like this? In that day, there's going to be no more atheists upon planet earth. There's going to be no more agnostics. You know why? Because His identity is clear and they can't deny it. 
Did you see what this text said? The text said that the sky split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. Now, let me see if I can give you a picture of what those words portray for us. Uh, some of you may remember, some of you who are, who are old enough, remember those old window shades that were complete uh, uh, blackout? And you pull them babies down, and if you didn't set them just right, they would go whoop and roll back up. You remember that? You see, that's the description of what he's telling us here when it's rolled up like a scroll. It's like a window shade that springs forth, and when the sky rolls up like a, like a scroll, what happens is the separation between this physical realm and the spiritual realm, that's the window. It opens up. It allows everyone to look into the spiritual realm. And now from earth they are looking right into the throne room of God in heaven. And they see God sitting on the throne. And they see the Lamb of God coming back to earth in wrath. They know very clearly who they're dealing with. Can I say to you, hear me, this physical order is not going to come to an end because of methane gas released by my cows in Brundage. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. How can anybody who claims to be scientific believe stuff like that? I don't get it. But watch me. It's not going to come to a conclusion because of natural causes. Time, history, and earth are going to wind up when God says they're going to wind up and He's already got that day marked on His calendar. Scroll, sky's going to roll up like a scroll. Men are going to look in. And there's going to be no more of these pseudo-intellectual professors at UF saying, well, I just don't think there's enough evidence to believe in God. <laughs> they're going to do like the rest of the cowards of that day and they're going to run and they're going to ask a rock to fall on them so they don't have to deal with the man, with the one whom they've been denying all their life. No more atheism, no more agnostics, no more excuses. Son, you're dealing eyeball to eyeball with the one with whom we all have to do. What a fearful thing if you don't know him. Hear what I'm saying? So let's get back to the text now. Notice what else. The last thing, the last unmistakable event. His identity will be clear to all. And then his elect will be collected by angels. Check this out. Look with me in verse number 13. Here's the fourth of uh, the last of the four marks that he gives us. Then he, who is that? That's the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ. He will send forth the angels and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth and to the farthest end of heaven. Can I say to you, one day they're coming for you. <laughs> they're coming for you one day if you belong to Him. It's not something to be paranoid about because they are His harvesting angels. And it doesn't matter where you are on that day. Did you see what the text says? You may be already passed away and gone and you're on the backside of glory out there plowing your, your tomato patch, uh, Jerry. <laughs> you know I don't believe that. I don't believe you're going to be there plowing a tomato patch, Jerry. <laughs> Let me clarify. I don't believe there's going to be a tomato patch there. I think Jerry will. All right, here we go. You're going to be collected no matter where you are. It's going to be so cool people among unreached people groups whom Grace Church is ministering to today are going to be caught up, going to be collected by angels from the remotest part of the earth. People who are already in heaven are going to be collected for this big event. 
Now let me reserve my additional comments on this event until we get a little bit deeper in this. Do you see that this is like a barge pushing a big tidal wave in front of it? In just a little while, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have it wash back over the bow. So here we go. Scriptural conclusions concerning the second coming. The first is the plain teachings of the text. And the heart of the teaching is found in verses 24 through 27. Then we get two illustrations to help us digest and understand that. So number one, the events of the second coming are unmistakable. Number two, the second half of this, the encouragement from the second coming. The encouragement that we gain from the teachings about the second coming is unmissable. Now, Dr. Wilson said this morning, I like that word. I love it when you make up words. And I do, I make up words sometimes. I mean, sometimes the English language just don't express what needs to be expressed from the, from the richness of the Bible. I didn't know how to say you can't miss it. You can't miss this encouragement except to make up a word, unmissable. So I did. So here we go. I'm guilty. It's mine. I don't know if it's in Webster or not. But it communicates. Hey, we're speaking the same redneck language, aren't we? You got me? You know what I mean? Needing more explanation on unmissable? Everybody with me? All right. You're with me. Here we go. We speak in the same language. What do I mean when I talk about encouragement? Here's the thing. Do you know most every time the subject of the second coming is brought up, it's not brought up to arouse our curiosity. It's not brought up to cause consternation or worry or paranoia. It's brought up as a doctrine that brings comfort and encouragement and hope to believers. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the analogy of faith. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul delves, delves into this subject with the Thessalonians. And here's what he says when he concludes all of that. Get this. In verse 18 of chapter 4, he says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So there's great comfort for us to have here. So let me show you what I mean when I say that this comfort, this encouragement, the exhortation is unmissable. And the reason it's unmissable is because he repeats it over and over and over. If you have your pen, here's a good time to bring it out and start marking. Look with me in verse 33. He says, keep on the alert. What does he encourage the church to do in relation to the second coming? Keep on the alert. Look with me again in verse number 34, the end of that verse. Stay on the alert. Verse 35, be on the alert. Turn the page with me, verse 37. What I say to you, and here's a good, here's a good indication that he's speaking to two crowds. What I say to you, my contemporaries who are around me today in A.D. 33, what I say to you, I say to all, Grace Church, 2021 in Bonifay, Florida. So he had you in mind when he spoke this. I'm saying to you, Peter, James, and John, but I'm saying to you, Grace Church also, what I say to you, I say to all. Here's a personal word from the Son of God regarding the second coming. And look what he says. Here's what he says to you. Is it any surprise? Be on the alert. Do you see why I say it's unmissable? Here's what he encourages us to do. Here's what he exhorts us to do in light of the teaching of the second coming. Be on the alert. Does anybody have an idea what he's encouraging us to do? To do what? Where did y'all get that from? <laughs> Be on the alert. 
He says it four times. But now I want to show you something here. Check this out. Look with me. The first time he says it, he says it in verse 33. Keep on the alert. Then he says it three other times. Now here's one of the exegetical difficulties. The first time he says be on the alert, it's a totally different Greek word from the last three times he says it. The first word that he uses is the Greek word agreo, which basically means don't be asleep. Don't be found spiritually lethargic, inactive. You know any churches have an inactive member list? They're living in direct contradiction to what Jesus is saying. Don't be inactive. Don't be asleep. Don't be spiritually lethargic. But the second or the, the, th- the next word that he uses, and he uses it three times, is the Greek word Gregorio. Now it is the very word from which we derive our English name, Gregory. It is also the word from which we get our adjective, which we use to describe some people who have a bubbly, uh, uh, extroverted, positive personality. What is it, Emma? Gregorius. So basically what he's saying here is in relation to the second coming, you be Gregorius. Now here's the difference between those two words. I have two German short hair pointers at home that are, 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 are very much different. Old Louie is like me. He's an old man. <laughs> His glory years are behind him. And Louis, he gets up every now and then he looks and he sees a deer out there and you can see the light bulb go off. I would love to chase that thing, but then you see sense take over him and he says, but I'm just going to stay here and take a nap. <laughs> That's Louis. Now our other German short hair pointer is not quite two years old. His name is Wyatt Johnson. And Wyatt Johnson only has two speeds. He is either snoring, I know he snores just like that. I mean, he's either, he's oblivious to the world, but when you wake him up, he can go from snoring to 90 miles an hour without ever hitting a second gear. (laughs) He's only got two gears. You see, Wyatt Johnson is that Gregorious personality, and Louis is the Agreo personality. Louis is just doing all he can do to stop, keep him falling asleep, and Wyatt's running wide open constantly. And that's what Jesus says for us to be here. He says, be Gregorious. As it relates to the second coming church, He says to you, what I say to you, I say to all, you be bright-eyed and you be bushy-tailed. You only have two gears. You're either asleep or you're wide open for me. So check this out. Notice what he does in light of all of this. Here's the encouragement. Here's what he tells us as he puts these two words, or, or this, the, 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 the last word to use. Here's what he says. He says, be watching for his globally simultaneous appearance. That's what you're to be Gregorious about. You're to be constantly vigilant. You're to be going to town watching for his globally simultaneous appearance. Now why do I say it's globally simultaneous? Watch me. Notice what this text teaches us. Look with me in verse number 35. Therefore be Gregorious, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. Turn the page. 
Whether it's in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. In which one of those time slots is he coming? Here's the answer. Yes. Because stop and think about it. And here's one of those... Oh, man, folks say the Bible's not scientific. Here's contradiction to that statement. Jesus is speaking here in language scientifically that's beyond the common knowledge maybe of His day. Because stop and think about it. He's going to come, boom. We're in one time zone in Bonifay, Florida. They're in another time zone cliff in Malaysia. Somebody is going to be awakened at midnight when the sky splits open like a scroll. Are you following me? Some people it's going to be when the rooster crows because it's a globally simultaneous event. It's not going to be one of those rolling things like New Year's Eve does on Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. It's not. He's not going to roll it in around the globe. He's going to come at once. And get this, here's what's so cool about it. I don't know how it's going to take place. I can't explain it to you. But everybody is globally, simultaneously going to see Him at the same time. Isn't that cool? Doesn't matter where you are, what time zone, what continent, or what pole you're at. It's going to happen. It's going to be globally, simultaneous, His personal appearance. So notice what this teaches us. What, what, does, what does it mean to be globally simult- uh, uh, to be watching for His globally simultaneous personal appearance? Check out the language. Now let me give you this. He says, do not be asleep, but be Gregorious. Now he's speaking to us directly out of the background of Jewish culture and what took place on a daily basis in the temple. Here's how it went down. Every day at sundown, temple guards would come out. And there were guards stationed all around the temple and all within it. And there was one guy who was in charge. It was normally a priest or a rabbi. And he would go around during the night. They didn't know what time he was going to come. But if if the big boss man came to your portion of the temple where you were an assigned watchman and you were sleeping, there was big trouble. Edersheim, in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus Messiah, tells us about what happens. If the priest came around and the guard was caught sleeping, there were two things that happened to him. One of two or both of them. Number one, he was beaten with a rod for sleeping on the job. Or number two, he had his clothes burned. Sometimes it was both. Now how would you like to be a temple guard? that got beat and had your clothes burned. Now in case you think that Jesus is not playing on this analogy, look with me again in Revelation. Revelation chapter 16. And verse number 15, as Jesus again talks about the second coming. Look what He says. Revelation 16 verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, and look what he says, and keeps his clothes. Why would he say that? Because the people that he was writing to knew very well what happened to temple guards who fell asleep on the job. They got their clothes burned. So look what he says in Revelation. He says, Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes That verse makes no sense if you divorce it from the historical background of what took place in the temple. 
does it. Now look what else he says. He says this, and he says, So that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Now, how would you like to have been a temple guard? Got your honey striped with a rod by the priest. And then you had to walk home naked. <laughs> what do you think? No, he was not. Oh, yeah, that's a good question, huh? Maybe he was sleeping naked beside him. I don't know. <laughs> but somehow or another, he got his clothes burned and beaten with a rod. Now, I, I, I want you to notice something else here. Check out um, Revelation again. Oh, man, where is it? Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, Revelation chapter 19. Look at this. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. That is the bride, the church, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. You know what righteous acts are associated with? Being Gregorious. Watching, staying on the alert. We're going to talk about that here in just a little while, but here's the deal. He's going to come, right? Everybody's going to see Him. He tells His church, you be Gregorious. You stay awake, don't get your clothes burned. How would you like it? If I said, Great Church, next Sunday is going to be the greatest Sunday in the history and the life of Grace Church. We're going to see things take place next Sunday that we've all dreamed about. We're going to see God do remarkable things that's going to define who we are for the next 50 years. It's going to be a hallelujah moment at Grace Church. I want you to come. The only catch is everybody's going to be naked. How many of you coming? Huh? This is RSVP right now. You coming? <laughs> what if all of this language, in all of this language about the second coming, if those believers who think it's not important to be Gregorious and be about the business of the king, what if at the second coming you're buck naked? Because there's no righteous acts. You see what I'm saying? Some, he's not just telling us to do this just because it would be a nice thing to do. Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. Be on the alert. Stay awake so that your clothes don't get burned and that folk won't see your nakedness. Is he just being poetic there? I think not. Dear Lord, is there going to be some believers who are wanting to get under the rug when the sky splits open because they don't have anything to wear? I've heard all my life folks giving the excuse, well, I can't go to church. I don't have anything to wear. You'd rather come to church naked than be found at the second coming in the buff. Are you with me? Now check this out. I've got to run on. I'm going to run out of time. My wife's in the nursery. She done told me, you don't preach long today. <laughs> so here we go. Yeah, she's not looking through the window, so I'm okay. Nobody tell her I said that, all right? If I want her to know it, I'll tell her myself. Here we go. What's my clock say? Oh, my clock says 10.45. We're in good shape. All right. Now, be watching for His globally simultaneous personal appearance. Be Gregorious. Why? Because it can happen at any moment. Look at verse number 30, uh, 32 and 36. 32 says, 
But of the day or the hour, no one knows. Not, the, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He's speaking here of the earthly limitations that the Son took upon Himself while He was incarnate upon this planet. Please don't project this upon the omniscient, omnipotent, glorified Christ today. I think He fully knows today. In this day in His incarnation, He took upon Himself natural limitations. But here's the, here's the crux of it. Nobody knows. These events could start happening today. They could. They, and, and Revelation says when they start, they're going to happen. Boom. All these folk who, who are super spiritual to say, well, I just watch for the signs of the times and I'll get spiritual when I see it start getting close. No, you won't. It's going to be too late. You can't. It's going to be too late. Check this out. It could happen at any moment. Number two is going to be with the great multitude. Now let's go back to the angels collecting the saints. And let me show you what he says here in verse number 26. And he quotes Daniel. Then they will see the Son of Man coming, here it is, in clouds. Underline that. In clouds. Paul talks about the same thing and it's found uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's do the analogy of faith one more time. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. Let me show you what it is that the Apostle Paul says about that. Uh, I was supposed to have underlined it. Here it is. It's in verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal on both of these uses. One way it's translated with a definite article. The other, in, the, in Mark chapter 13, it's no definite article in front of clouds. Did you notice that? It's not the clouds. When the Bible speaks of the second coming in clouds, get this. He's not talking about Nimbulo, Stratus, and Cirrus, and all these clouds that we see here. That's not what he's saying. In classical Greek, every time there was a reference to clouds in the heavens, the Stratus and the Nimbulus and the Cirrus, it's always got the definite article in front of it, the clouds. When the Bible speaks of the second coming, it says He's coming in clouds. Now, here's what the Bible means when it just says in clouds. It means with a great multitude. There's going to be so many believers, there's going to be clouds of believers. Now, if you, if you think I'm off base here, write this reference down, the analogy of faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1. Therefore, brethren, being surrounded by such a great cloud... Of witnesses. He's talking about people. He's not talking about the, 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 the steam and the water vapor and the ice crystals and the atmosphere. He's talking about a cloud of who? A cloud of people. So get this. When the angels collect all of the elect from the beginning of creation until the time He comes, that's going to be a great multitude. That's going to be clouds and clouds of people. Isn't that cool? We got to be watching because this moment can, because this, the second coming happen any moment and it's going to happen with a great multitude. Number next, it's going to happen, he says, with great majesty. Look what he says again in verse number 26. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. He's bringing everybody with him who has ever been saved throughout all of history. He's bringing them with Him. Isn't that cool? The analogy of faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For those whom have fallen asleep, 
God will bring with him. So Jerry, the reason he's going to get you if you're already in heaven is because you're going to be a part of that cloud that day and the fulfillment of that old song they sing in New Orleans. When the saints go marching in. But brethren, we're not going to march in. We're going to fly in on the hills of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we're going to participate in the ultimate victory that He won on Calvary's cross when He puts all rule, all authority, and all dominion underneath His feet. Woo! Do you see it coming together now? You're not going to miss it. You're going to have a front row seat to everything that He does. And here's what's cool about it. The world is going to be doing its dirty, rotten worst at that time. And the Son of Man's going to step through that portal in eternity, between eternity and time, when the sky rolls back like a scroll, and He's not going to fire a shot. You're not going to have to draw a bow. He's going to speak the Word, and He's going to put it in order with the words of His mouth. Man! And the good news is, even if you're dead, you get to come back with Him and see it. And all the people on earth are going to be caught up, and they're going to see it and experience with Him. Good God, it would be all right with me if you did it right now. Huh? A globally simultaneous event, and He's coming with great majesty. Now get this. Oh, listen. The world ain't ever seen anything like the glory of the exalted Son of God. Never seen anything like that. And get this. When He comes with great majesty and power, do you know why the sun doesn't shine Because as radiant and as brilliant as the sun is, I think in His presence the sun is embarrassed. And the sun says, I'm not shining. Stars, as wondrous as they are, when He steps back into this physical realm of the universe, stars are going to begin to fall all over the place because they can't compete with the glory of the One who's coming. He's coming with great majesty, I'm telling you. You begin to get the picture why there are going to be no atheists at that time. And son, he's going to zoom you up. He's going to bring you with him and you're going to have a front row. It's going to be the best picture you've ever seen, the best movie you've ever watched in your life. And you're going to be participating in the glory of the returning victorious Son of God. My, my, i got to get out of here. Look, look with me. He says, be watching for his globally simultaneous personal appearance. And number two... He says, be working on your eternally significant personal assignment. That's a mouthful, isn't it? I ran out of space on my outline so I couldn't break them apart. I had to scram them together. So here we go. I want you to see something about this eternally significant thing. Do you see throughout this passage there are two orders described here? One order is temporal and fading. He describes it when he talks about how it's fading because... because The sun will not give its light. The moon will be darkened. The stars are going to fall. That is this physical temporal order and it's fading. It's going to collapse. He talks about heaven and earth passing away in verse 31. Do you see that? He's going back and forth between two orders. One is temporal, physical and fading. One is eternal and it's glorious. Now... When I say be working on your eternally significant personal assignment, I say we had best be spending our time and energy not on the one that's going to fall one day, 
but on the one that's never going to pass away. That's what it means to be doing something that's eternally significant. So here you go. If we spend all of our life working and investing in this earthly, temporal, fading realm, your life's work's going to burn up. It's going to burn up. And you might be found naked at the second coming. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 describes. Let me take you there, the analogy of faith, will you? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't want to turn there, just listen to, to what it says. Here's what Paul says. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day, here he's talking about the day when Christ comes, the day of the Lord, the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work has been built on remains, he'll receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will get this. What's that next word? Man, I'm so sick of all of these folk that tell me they're born again, but they have no need for the church or being involved in anything kingdom-wise because they're saved and that's all that matters. No, it isn't all that matters. You go ahead and invest in this physical, temporal world that's fading with your life's work building with wood, hay, and stubble and sun on that day. What's the word you're going to experience? Suffer. Suffer. Do you see? He's already given us several warnings. You're going to suffer and you might just be naked. Don't be caught, he says, with your clothes burned. So check it out here. Let's walk on through this. So what is your eternally significant work? How do you do something that's going to last? The grass withers, the flower fades. How do, you, how do you know when you're doing something that has eternal significance and you're not just making a living with all of our time during the week? Well, here we go. I want you to see this. Here's the biggest exegetical challenge in this entire passage. Look in verse number 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Underline that word generation. It is the most critical exegetical factor in this text. How you understand that is going to determine where you come out in this, on this passage. Generation. Now there are three options. Number one, some folks say that this generation refers to, again, Jesus' contemporaries, those who were around Him and who could hear His physical voice. This generation. If that's the case, then that means everything in Mark chapter 13 has already taken place. We reject that biblically and we reject that historically because we know it hasn't taken place. The other option is everything in here refers to the future. And this generation, he's talking about the generation that's alive when the sky rolls up like a scroll. That puts everything in the future which gives us another exegetical problem. So here's the, the third option. And I think the way to solve this, do you see this word generation that you underlined? Let me show you how it's translated in other places. For sake of time, let me just give you one. 1 Peter chapter 2, I want you to see this. 1 Peter and chapter number Dois. 
chapter number 2. I don't hear pages turning. Are y'all looking on the phone or if, y'all, if I lost y'all? Here we go. Y'all, y'all still out there? All right, good. Y'all make some noise every now and then. Somebody cough. Somebody sneeze. Somebody do something. Let me know you're here. All right, look in verse number 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writing to the people of God. He says, you are a chosen race. It's translated race in the New American Standard. But here is a chosen generation. It doesn't matter because he's talking about all the people of God in all times and in all places. You are a chosen generation or a chosen race. It's translated race in several more places. So here's what I think Jesus is saying by generation. This generation will not pass away. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about his people, the church. And in essence, what he's saying is that the church, no matter what she faces, no matter how great the tribulation, my church is absolutely, positively indestructible. They're not going to pass away. You see, I gave you all those things that were a part of the temporal order in this passage. What are some of those things that are part of the eternal order that will never pass away? One of them is the church. So here is your eternally significant work that you're to be involved in. Number one, building up the body. You see, that's what community is about. That's what church is about. Can I say to you, if you're not investing in the body of Christ, then you're not investing in the right place. Someone once said, Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth eats and rust corrupts and thieves breaks in and steals, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. How do you lay up treasure for yourself in heaven? It's very plain and simple. You do it by investing in people who are going there. That is building up the body. That's making your contribution to the body of Christ and to the expansion of His kingdom. That's making an eternal investment. And if you're not doing that, what are you investing all your time and effort and energy and resources in? Man, we better be Gregorious about this. We better be serious about making disciples. We better be serious about our commitment to the local church and our relationship with her. It's one of the only things that has eternal significance on this planet. Everything else is going to blow up one day. Check it out. Number next. And I think he juxtaposes these two together for us to see this. This generation will not pass away. Jesus said this, speaking of His people. He said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So guess what, church? We may die, but there will always be the people of God on planet earth until the sky rolls back like a scroll. The church is indestructible. Man, that's what I want to be investing my life in. How about you? Check it out. Number next, what else he says? So if we're going to do something eternally significant, then we had better be involved in the body and building up the body. Number next, if we're going to do something that's eternally significant, it better be based on the Bible. Check this out, because look, here's where he juxtaposes these two ideas. Generation is in verse 30, and then look in verse number 31, he gives commentary. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
You see, he's talking about, again, here's these two world orders, or these two orders. One is temporary, physical, and fading. The other is eternal and glorious, and it will never pass away. He gives us two things in this passage that give us eternal significant and eternally significant work to do in the here and now. One of them is building up the body, and the other one has to do with the Bible. So we had better get to investing in both of those areas. Now you understand why Grace Church, you understand why Dr. John stands up here every Sunday like he did this, this morning and said, we're going to invest in people. Because that's the only eternally significant thing we have to do. We're going to invest in people. We're going to teach God's Word. Why? Because that's eternal. It will not pass away. Well, i got to hurry. Look here, two parts to this statement. Eternally significant and your personal assignment. Because check out what he said in verse 34. When this man went on a journey... He left in charge. That word there is authority. So he put his slaves in authority, assigning to each one his task. That's so important. Underline that. He assigned to each one his task. Do you remember Matthew chapter number 25 where Jesus talked about the parable of the talents? And the same scenario we have here. He gave to each one of his servants or slaves according to his own ability. Watch me. Two things, two parts of this. One is eternally significant. The other is your personal assignment. Are you following me? Eternally significant, the body and the Bible. Personal assignment. What is yours? What is yours? Because based on God's Word, which will never pass away, hear me, He has given you a personal assignment. And that is the avenue through which you're going to make an investment of eternal significance in His people using His Word. Are you following me? So let me just stop right there and say, what is your personal assignment? And are you Gregorious about it? Are you getting at it? Are you asleep on the job and being subject to being beaten and having your clothes burned? What is your personal assignment? Look, this is not a rhetorical question. I hope the Spirit of God is racking your heart and brain right now thinking, Dear God, what is my eternally significant personal assignment? What has He left me to do as it relates to the body and the Bible? Well, I didn't want to leave you there, so let me give you a couple of clues of how to find that, can I? Here's your personal assignment. It's based on your individual makeup. Number one, what can I do? What can I do? And when I say what can I do, I mean what abilities have God, has God given you? What spiritual gifts has God given you that allow you to supernaturally do what you can't do in the flesh? See, that's a spiritual gift. So what has God equipped you uniquely to do in order to fulfill your personal assignment and be Gregorious about it? What can I do? So just ask myself that. And man, you know what? We don't have to be super spiritual about this. I, I mean, I got a friend of mine that told me that day, he said, man, I was preaching on us doing what, what God has left for us to do. And he said, after, after the service, one of my men come up to me and said, preacher, I can never stand up and preach a sermon. But you know what? God's given me the ability to fix things. He's an auto mechanic. He said, I want to use the profession and the abilities that God's given me to build up the body. He said, tell you what. He said, I, I've noticed we've got several single mothers in our church. He said, if you'll help me, 
He said, I'll bring my auto shop up here. We'll set up on church parking lot and we'll fix the car. We'll go through. We'll, do, we'll tune up every car for every single mother in our church. See what I'm saying? Here's a guy that said, Preacher, I'm going to leave the preaching and the exegesis and the exposition to you. But I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to invest in the body. You get me some folk together whom I can serve. And by golly, I'll knock myself out serving them. Isn't that cool? So what can I do? It's not rocket science. It's not what is somebody else doing that I wish I could do. It's what is within my wheelhouse. What can I do to serve Grace Church in our community? Number next, what am I commanded to do? What's the Bible to say I'm to do? What am I to be about doing until He comes back? Here it is, making disciples. Investing in the body. Living on the Word. Proclaiming the Word. Investing the Word in others. It's not rocket science. So how does all this fit together for you and your own personal makeup? And then finally, don't check out on me. i got two minutes. Ooh, my wife's glaring through the window. Look at my clock. What do I like to do? Here's what I've noticed about God. God isn't a slave driver that forces you to do something that you dread. If you're dreading it, it probably ain't your assignment. Because what God has left for you, you're going to love to do it. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of the heart. Desires of your heart. So what do you like to do? What are your desires? Listen to one more scripture and I'm through, Heather. Philippians chapter 2, listen to what he says. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 13, For it is God who is at work in you. Did you hear that? It's not so much up to you, it's up to God in you. God is at work in you. Second, uh, first, or Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let me give you the Richie translation. It's God at work in you to give you the want to. He gives you the want to. He's the one who controls your desires. The thoughts of a righteous man are established by God's. He runs thoughts across your mind sometimes. So what do you want to do? What do you like to do? That's your personal assignment. Hey church, listen to me. This issue of the second coming, it's deep water. But we've got some encouragement here. We've got some encouragement to be watching and to be working and to be investing in things that make an eternal difference. Can I just be honest with you, Grace? We ain't going to be about big things for the glory of Christ that are eternally significant, and I've got better things to do. Thank God for a church that has a heart for getting at the things that matter and leaving the things that don't for somebody else to worry about. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It boggles our minds.